Welcome to episode 209 of Greater Than Code. I'm your co-host, Rain Hendricks, and I'm here with my friend, Laurie. Hi, Rain. Thanks so much. I'm here with John, who's going to introduce our guest for this very exciting 209th episode. Thanks, Laurie. Our guest today is Mia DeBerka, an Irish software engineer and circus performer. From a young age, she has an ongoing love affair with language. She accidentally fell into coding by taking an undergraduate in computational linguistics in order to cheat her way into a language degree without having to write any essays on culture. She went on to complete a master's in French translation with a dissertation on the effect of machine translation on the words this and that. It wasn't as boring as it sounds, she promises us. Now, firmly under the spell of software, Mia works as a full-stack web developer at 99designs, a global creative platform based in Melbourne, Australia. Her focus is on creating empathetic and empowering workplaces and crafting software solutions that deliver real value to users. When she's not coding up a storm or circusing her heart out, Mia can be found monkeying around with her 16-month-old sleep thief slash daughter. Welcome to the show, Mia. Hi, folks. How's everybody doing today? Lovely to get a chance to chat to you. We'll start off with the first question we always ask our guests, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Um, so I had to have a think about this one, but I've decided that my superpower is adaptability, which is my fancy way of like re-winging it. And I would say that I acquired this ability from an almost pathological inability to follow instructions. Did you that- first notice that capability kicking in for you? I would say my partner notices my inability to follow instructions in recipes, where I'll be like, oh, I'm just going to cook this thing for dinner. And if he has to take over, he's like, well, what step are you at? And I'm like, well, sort of three and seven at the same time. But I also stopped doing any of it. And we didn't have any of the ingredients in the first place. (laughs) But it it does come in handy, I think, because when there aren't instructions available, you can sort of make them up as you go along. Or if, as I said, there isn't a certain thing on the list that's there, you can just substitute something else in and get it working anyway. That implies a skill of cooking that I personally do not possess. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I, I sort of aim for like just nutritious enough to live on, but nothing <laughs> fancy whatsoever, I promise. So to what do you attribute your uh, skill at being adaptable? I don't know, really. It's just something that I've always enjoyed getting into awkward, difficult new situations. When I was a little bit younger, I used to spend every summer just up and leaving Ireland and going to France try to find a job, spend the whole summer working so that I could learn the language a little bit. And yeah, you really just have to learn on your feet and figure things out as you go. Don't even necessarily know the language fully, just figure it out. That certainly is a a way to build that skill like in real time, right? If you're not planning that much, you're just sort of throwing yourself into that situation and saying, all right, let's figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I I probably would have done that to a small degree with my with my undergrad, like you mentioned when you were introducing me. I had no intention of learning programming at any point whatsoever. I, I started an undergraduate in French translation, and it was all these like group projects and presentations and essays on culture and politics and history. And I was like, no, I don't want this. I just want to learn how to speak French better. And so I dropped out. And after bumming around in France for a while, my mom was like, well, you should probably maybe consider doing some sort of formal education now or if you if you leave it for too long you might not want to do it anymore and she said I found this one where it's like French and linguistics and like I don't know some computer stuff but you were good at maths in school so maybe that would be good and I was like all right okay I'll give it a go and I rocked up on my first day with my my Windows laptop and everyone else was there like on the terminal going wild and I'm like oh no what have I done (laughs) and um yeah I you know, stick with it for a wee bit and see how it all pans out. But yeah, I came into it with zero computer knowledge whatsoever. I think we often underestimate how much computer knowledge we actually have when it's not sort of the typical thing that a lot of people in those classes would have. So I'm curious if you can look back and, and kind of recognize any skills that you may have had that came in handy in that class that you didn't expect to. I think that sort of speaks to the fact that career changers or people with different backgrounds can come in and actually realize that they have a lot of applicable skills they might not recognize. Yeah, absolutely. No, in hindsight, I don't think I was as out of my depth as I felt at the time. I definitely made a lot of assumptions about the type of person that was in that room and not really fitting into that into that model. Having a lot of language background, and hopefully I don't fudge my words throughout this entire episode and make a hands of myself, but I do think I have an ability to 
I suppose, Paris information. I had research skills from my previous degree that I could go and fly through things in the library. And yeah, certainly I think maybe sometimes I look back and I think, oh, actually, I don't know that that information was delivered in a way that made it comprehensible. So I would sit there and say, I'm not smart enough to do this. I don't understand what anybody's telling me. But perhaps really the information wasn't that complex. And I was just making assumptions. So I noticed that your uh, your bio says without having to write any essays on culture. So do you consider yourself like a one field anthropologist, just like linguistics, but skip the other three? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I didn't quite 100% get away with no essays in, uh, in <laughs> university, but certainly there were, I think was we almost had to write two dissertations when we were finishing our undergraduates, one to like a, a project and then in, in the computer science area and then a linguistics thing as well. And I in my my linguistics thing was basically coding anyway, because I used MATLAB, I think, to do some speech synthesis and gosh, it's been a little while, so you'll have to forgive me, but it was it was to do with speech prosody and um, projecting speech patterns and the aim was to assist perhaps nonverbal people in recognizing um, I'm more curious to about like your relationship to the more like cultural you know aspects of anthropology, like cultural cultural anthropology, I guess. Like, why not writing or like studying culture? I suppose I didn't enjoy the objectiveness of the aspects of writing those essays. So, I found that once I was writing exams on maths, it's like, well, there is an answer, and you just have to get there. Whereas when I was being quizzed on areas like culture and politics, I didn't enjoy as much having to back up my opinions or find common ground in that way. I like a right and wrong answer. I like something more straightforward. <laughs> but I do find that there is where some areas in linguistics that were quite interesting and sociolinguistics, child language acquisitions, fascinating, particularly at the moment having become a, a parent recently. And uh, linguistic relativism was something that was quite interesting to me at the time. I'm, if you're not familiar, it's this idea that uh, the language that we speak somehow influences the way that we engage around us, whether that's determining our ability to engage with the world would be the strong concept or weakly um, just colors it in some way. I thought that was really fascinating. That's the uh, Satyr-Whorf hypothesis? Yeah, the Whorf-Safe hypothesis. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Interesting stuff. But um, I shy away from bringing it up sometimes because I feel like it gives yet another opportunity for people to create this otherness around yourself and other cultures or yourself and other languages. So there's the like, Lakoff, for example, likes to talk about there are cultures where they don't have the concept of left and right, just north and south, you know, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. But I suppose it doesn't mean that they have, they can't relate to us in their own way. And it doesn't mean that we can't find common ground and understand one another. Yeah, it's interesting because it's also sort of been the folk theories of this have extrapolated so far from what what was in the actual original work to say that, you know, if you don't have a, a word for something, you can't think of that thing, you know, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not really something we need in our world. <laughs> I might backtrack I, I, just a little bit. Um, you mentioned that, you know, this is, has become even more interesting to you since you've recently become a parent and you have a 16-month-old in tech. That in and of itself is a specialty skill. So I would I would love to hear about how that has changed your work in the industry, if it has at all. For starters, I when I came back to <laughs> when I came back to work, it was only part-time. So that has immediately been a big change for me in condensing productivity down into just two days. It's been an adjustment to trying to get the same satisfaction of like shipping code and having a, a positive impact into just two days. Um, I'm pretty grateful for my workplace for A, allowing me to come back part-time and B, really helping me out in managing my time or teasing together what the expectations of a part-time worker are. I also got promoted just a few months after coming back part-time, so I'm very pleased with that one as well. And I think I'm pretty grateful to them for finding ways to recognize their parent workers or their part-time workers, people who are carers. Yeah. I know we all want to talk about tech parenthood and I do too, but I have one more question about this dead horse, which <laughs> Please is <fire> away. <laughs> when you switched to software development, did you find it to be as objective and truth-based as you were, as you were hoping? Certainly at least in university. 
the problems that you're dealing with are more like, hey, reverse this string. And you're like, oh, there's such a beautiful comfort in such a simple problem. Of course, there's going to be a million ways of solving that in a million different languages. But at a very minimum, yes, that aspect of it was definitely what I was looking for. More recently, no. (laughs) I'm imagining like you, you got into industry and you said, oh, look, culture and politics again. (laughs) yes absolutely and finding a balance between requirements and time pressure and a variety of other things there's certainly no one beautiful absolute truth anymore to cling on to absolutely not but at least the foundation remains the same and when you need to have that comforting just like i'll just maybe i'll just go through and refactor a thing that's a that's a yes to a yes again and you get all your nice beautiful green passing tests Is it sort of like reassuring to go back to a computer that has very well sort of logically defined right and wrong answers? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's it. I'm done now. (laughs) If we're going to pivot back to the parenthood and work styles, I'm really curious about the part-time work aspect of it. Because I know that like navigate tricky because I think there's not a lot of great examples of how that's supposed to work in the industry, but it also strikes me as one of those things that's really critical for bringing people back into the workplace after, you know, they've had children rather than having to wait multiple years till they've got, you know, finally enough free time to actually have a job, like a full-time job again. So I'm curious to hear you talk about that more. Well, for starters, I'd like to say that I do find myself quite privileged to have had the choice to return to work when it suited me, as opposed to that being dictated either by zero parental leave in the country or perhaps by the prohibitive costs of childcare that are in some countries. So definitely I feel very grateful that I could come back at a time that it worked for me. There was some precedent in my company already with part-time, both in the managerial roles and also we had maybe one or two, I think one engineer return after maternity leaves. Sorry, I am based in Australia at the moment. And I think we have 12 weeks of obligatory paid maternity leave and perhaps two weeks. But I might get that wrong. And I'm I'm not sure I was. What civilized countries do. Yeah, um, I'm not actually a citizen of Australia as well. So there was a little bit of I'm not even sure if I reached the same entitlements as other people. But I was just quite lucky that the company that I work for, they supported me in that way. And they were the ones who offered me the maternity leave. I think perhaps maybe you get the opportunity to have a a year of leave with your job protected, but not necessarily paid leave. Maybe that's the government response. And then paternity leave is a different question. And I won't go down that rabbit hole, but certainly would have preferred to have a little bit more equality on that front. But yeah, to your question on returning to work, I think that my workplace did a really great job in putting the ball as to what what I needed to make that transition a little bit smoother. We had a scheme in place called keep in touch days. And it meant that on some days that suited me, I could pop into the office for a couple of hours paid to see what projects were ongoing and maybe touch a computer for the first time in a little while. So that when I did come back on a more permanent basis, it wasn't this like terrifying, well, my whole dev environment is screwed up and I don't know what the current projects in the company are and goodness knows if we're even using React anymore because I've been gone for nine months and that kind of thing. I think that was one of the things that concerned me when I had some time off is like, oh my goodness, um, tech moves so quickly and will I even know how to do anything anymore? But I did find then when I came back, it's like, well, you know, things move quickly, but it's really just problem solving at its heart always. So maybe we adopted a new library, but that's just a little bit of documentation reading. I guess as a mother as well, my my experience has been that depending on the size of the company, the expectation remains the same. So like you're expected to kind of uh, contribute like at maximum productivity um, and there is no kind of negotiating that, right? So coming back from maternity leave and trying to like ramp up again, I feel for me was super difficult and I've done it three times, (laughs) three times, but I also see the same for other individuals and uh, especially when, when it's a very large tech company, um, it's not as simple. Uh, I feel like we're uh, mothers are almost dinged in a way, right? For like having children. And so you're not put on the same projects or, you know, you're kind of um, set up to fail. So I'd love to like, have you, I mean, even if this hasn't been your experience, have you seen that as well across maybe like, you know, friends or acquaintances um, and maybe even your experience at different, at a different company? What have you seen? 
Well, for, for starters, it wasn't quite my experience. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to come and chat with you all is to really highlight how we can do this in a really good way. So partly those keeping in touch days that meant that I wasn't out of the loop. I should mention that those weren't compulsory. That was voluntary. And I suppose part of what made my transition back to work really good for me was the degree to which management put the ball in my court and let me dictate the terms of coming back and how much I wanted to be involved while I was away. You know, we have some social activities and we have tech book clubs. And if I wanted to dial in or I wanted to pop into the office, that was fine. So that meant that I was at least in the loop and in touch with the people that I worked with. And it was a little bit less isolating as well, which can be a problem for parents or carers who are staying at home. And then when I did get back, there was a lot of a lot of one-on-one meetings, a lot of support to try and tease out what it is that I wanted from the experience because it's an individual thing. Like you might come back and say like, I'm going to hit the ground running. I am gunning for a manager position. I want to run the world. And you might say like, I'm really pleased to be back. I'm happy to just kind of plow through, get my work done. And uh, I don't have particular aspirations for growth at this exact point in time. So my manager would have asked me like, do you want to take on certain sets of responsibilities or not? And I was like, yeah, let's go. (laughs) And we tried to find ways that we could break down work and give me responsibilities in that way. But yeah, it's certainly difficult. And I know that there is definitely a stigma and some discrimination that still goes on in the world against mothers who are returning to work. And I've read studies in the past that indicate that actually working mothers get an awful lot more done in the time that they are there, whether it's because they have better time management skills or because they're trying to prove a point. I felt that when I was back and it was nothing to do with my company's expectations of me, but more my own where I was adamant that I was going to show, no, no, I'm still just as hard a worker and uh, I can definitely do this. So for example, our, our work was really great and they had like a breastfeeding pumping room set up for me and some of the other employees who were still pumping and that was fantastic. (laughs) The only room in the office with a lock and a little fridge and that was great. And that was at my discretion to drop out of a meeting or leave any time that I needed to. But instead I was like, no, no, I'm not gonna leave the meetings. I'm gonna I'm gonna show that I'm just as hard a worker as I've ever been. And I put it off and put it off to the point of actually making myself a little sick one day. So that's just an example of how, you know, you, your own mental model and your own perceptions of what's expected of you can can really negatively influence the work that you can get done and, and your day in general. <laughs> that was very foolish. Yeah, it sounds like that's that's like this like unrealistic kind of pressure and expectation, right? That like now we have to work harder and smarter to prove that, you know, we're able to to juggle that as well, right? In addition to being mothers, that we haven't changed, you know, being techies, we're just now, we've inherited another superpower, which is yeah. like multitasking <laughs> and raising a human. It's interesting though that the, the motherhood aspect of it almost highlights something in my mind that's true for all of developers, which is the idea that, You're solving a Rubik's Cube in your head every time you're writing code, conceivably. And we're not really wired to do that for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day or sometimes six hours a day. And so every time you think, you know, someone's a full-time employee, how many hours of that day is them on Twitter walking around or trying to, you know, rewire their head to be focused enough to do what is a very challenging focus oriented task and how much with you know moms coming back to the workforce is them just saying okay i'm probably getting the same amount of work done as someone else i'm just doing it in four hours because four hours is what i have and that the expectations being different for moms is where we're kind of recognizing i'm not a parent right And so for me, I think the expectations are off maybe even a little bit for people who are full-time employees, that they can't get that much work done in a day and they're just sort of sitting there and wasting, let's say, 50% of their time or 80% of their time or whatever it is at a given day because the job is hard and you can't do so much hard focus work. And maybe there's something about you know, what you both were saying about, you know, better time management skills and, and all of that, that actually makes you just as effective with less time and ruthless prioritization. I think that's absolutely so true. Yeah, 100%. Before even being a parent, I, I used to work four days a week. And even that felt like, gosh, was I just wasting eight hours previously? Because I would almost always get just as much done. And it would be slightly more invigorating as well. 
I don't know if everyone agrees, but I quite like working to deadlines as well. I think it's nice to have like something that you can reach for and something to to the shows that marks that you've accomplished something in a time frame. And yes, absolutely, working two days, working four days, more often than not, I think I am just as productive. Yeah. I got to say, listening to the kind of two sides of the story and noticing that there's definitely a geographic difference is a little bit heartbreaking. Because I mean, we know we people, women in the US know this to be true, right? We don't necessarily get the same protections and all of that. But I haven't heard a lot of success stories. I've heard stories a lot more like what Christina is talking about. And so recognizing that there are these different patterns and wondering whether or not they are the type of patterns that larger companies or even companies of any size will adapt or if it's just easier for them to say, okay, so we're going to hire men and women who don't plan on having kids. And like, that's sobering and upsetting and frustrating and (laughs) all sorts of things. And I wonder, Christina, if you've heard or seen any examples where you feel like people have done it well, even if you haven't necessarily gotten to be the mom in that scenario? I have not. I have not. I can, I only, I've actually seen people just kind of leave the workforce because they couldn't handle the constant juggling or just, you know, move into more like entrepreneurship, right? Self-employment and or consulting. I know for me, I do, I juggle both, but it's only because I have the support of my husband. Because he's here, I'm able to focus on work. Uh, if that were not the case, then it would be super hard as well for me with three three kids. Uh, what I did experience is years ago, I um when I had my last child, I I you know when I'm maternity leave, I had my three months because in the U.S. obviously they give us like three months. Most employers, and then you have some really great employers that will give you up to like five or six months paid. Um, at the time, I only had three months, and when I came back, I was pretty much almost like demoted, right? So I wasn't told like, oh, you're being demoted. I was told, well, you know, there's been a change of plans and we're going to put this other guy that knows nothing about technology over you because it just makes sense. And that happened coincidentally like the week that I got back. So I have not seen any success stories, unfortunately, but I'm looking. (laughs) I'm still looking. I haven't lost hope. I can give one not from my own perspective, but describing the journey of, of the woman who's currently my boss. She started out as a prod support engineer just before I joined the company. And in that time, she's had two children and is now the associate vice president of product engineering and um, has been able to take her maternity leave and come back um, and then and continue on. Like, I don't, I don't feel like it's impeded her path. I, you know, she may have had internal experiences with that, that were not necessarily positive, but at least in the end, it seems like she's done okay with it. I think so much of it depends on the company culture and how they how they want to treat that, you know, to make sure that coming back is is a positive experience and, and keeps you uh, engaged. I agree. That's a good point. I think it really does depend on the company culture. You're right. Um, and how they support like return folks or at Microsoft. I know we call them like returnities. <laughs> but, and they have like, pro, you know, programs where like, you know, supportive programs for folks that were coming back. So that, that, that does matter. It makes a difference. Yeah, I definitely agree that that culture aspect is, is very important to the visibility of parents in the workplace. Like a lot of my immediate managers had very recently become parents themselves. So I didn't really feel like this was a, an aspect of my life that I had to hide when I was at work. You know, if you've had a really awful morning of zero sleep and you show up to work, like I shouldn't have to pretend that I'm going to be as effective and maybe like I won't be the person who's doing that perhaps tricky production little bit of wrangling maybe I'll just pair with somebody today and that's going to be my contribution and I didn't feel like this was something that I would have to just pretend that it's not happening yeah there's definitely lots of parents in our workplace and that's really great something I've been thinking about lately related to this topic as I see a lot of friends sort of decide whether they're going to go the parent in the workplace path or not be a parent or, you know, basically making that decision um, is the tenure that we have in this industry is not particularly long. You know, some people have been at their companies for six years, but you very frequently see kind of the every two year turnover sort of thing. And that's how you get your raise. And that's how you get your promotion. And how does that factor in with 
a pregnancy and with maternity leave benefits and how long you have to be at a company and whether you can, you know, switch when you are pregnant or uh, whether you have to worry about job searching when you're coming back from maternity leave. I mean, that's a piece of the puzzle that I think is maybe not talked about very much, but absolutely affects people's ability to progress and grow when we're not great necessarily about promoting within companies. And there is a lot of job hopping that goes along in order to progress in your career. And that's such a great point. I don't have the answers, but I, I, you're right. I I think we don't, we don't talk about that and it, it becomes super challenging, right? Like the juggling. I mean, I know for many years, I refused to tell anyone that I had children, like at all. I didn't want to talk, like I didn't talk about it because I knew that it would, it would almost like be held against me. And I just got tired of like holding it in, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it definitely has an impact. That's I mean, awful. Yeah. I think it's really just such a shame because in tech, we're trying to achieve more diversity. We're trying to introduce different opinions, different stances on things and how that benefits our product and how that benefits our workplace. And being a parent, being a carer, all of these bring different perspectives to this table. You know, if you're talking about the company that I work for is involved with design for small to medium businesses. And a lot of those are often stay at home parents who are trying to get a business off of the ground. You're perhaps juggling a few different things. So I see a design come across the table that is a UI that's inaccessible on a mobile device and like I I know I'm going to be holding a child in one hand and trying to make an important purchase decision in another hand then I'm going to have that to share whereas another person might overlook that so we're really doing a, a disservice to our businesses if we're obliging our employees to not bring their full identity to the table yeah I think that's particularly important now that we're all working from home because it, you know, you know, some people don't have a dedicated office, and then they're going to be out in space, and the children are going to be around, and you know, if it's if it's not okay to see that parenting happening, like that's it's going to be a really difficult experience for someone. Like you know, I have half the meetings I have with my a child climbing along the couch behind her, and you know, she's got to calm them down and do like, you know, that's just what life is like, you know, and, and I think our team is very acculturated around that. That's just what life is for some of the people on our team and that's okay. But yeah, it's, it's still such a challenge to feel like you would have to hide that while you're in the middle of it in your house. Yeah. I can only imagine just that mental overhead of constantly trying to pretend that there's not other things going on in your life as opposed to having that supported and understood as well. I almost feel like, you know, the current state of the world with the remote work and the pandemic and all that has somewhat, it's hurt in a lot of ways, because obviously you don't get the daycare support or the family support or the school or all of that. But it's literally putting those things within the view of your coworkers. It is forcing them to recognize that this is something that is physically in your space when previously it was mentally in your space. And out of sight, out of mind is a real thing. And so, you know, for me, I see a coworker and they seem to be having a perfectly fine day, but you know, they forgot this one thing that I told them. And, you know, ordinarily they forgot something I told them, no big deal. I might not recognize that they're stressed about the fact that their kid's homesick today. But when I see it on a screen, I can sort of make those connections a little bit better and recognize that like, you know, just like, I mean, example, we're buying a house right now and that's been really stressful. And there are entire hours of the day where we're waiting for news to see if something's going to go through. And I'm just like a shell of a human and super not useful because there is something else occupying my mental space. And parents have that in spades and they have it always. And they have it more than, you know, the average person. That's not to say that other people don't have, you know, ill parents or whatnot, but parents have it a hundred percent of the time and being able to see it and having it, you know, in a zoom background or hearing it, you know, the chaos through, headphones or whatever it is, I think that's kind of helpful. I think it adds perspective for everybody else because it's parents have gotten so good at sort of hiding those things and coming into work every day and pretending like, you know, there's nothing going on. And that's not true. And it's not reality. And they can still be productive and have those things going on. But it's it's useful for us to be empathetic and sympathetic to that. There's a lovely quote, which I'm probably going to butcher because I I don't fully remember it, but it's about becoming a parent. And it's along the lines of becoming a parent is to decide to forever walk with your heart on the outside of you. I don't think that's exactly how it goes, but it's it's so true. And 
this slight invisible burden of being a parent in work, or even sometimes the burden of being a woman in the workplace, which is hidden from other people. There's a lot of things that are going through your mind at all times, whether it's how are my colleagues judging me or perceiving me? How, how was I perceived in that last meeting that I went to? Or what's the future going to hold for me? And these are things that you're thinking about constantly. It's hilarious because I was actually telling my husband about that quote the other day because I was talking about our dog. I was like, when we got our dog, I'd never had a dog before. I was like, all of a sudden, I think about her like 100% of the time. I'm on vacation. I worry if she's happy. I'm, you know, she's at daycare. I worry if she's happy. She's downstairs. I worry if she's happy. (laughs) And humans, 10 times, 5 million times, infinity times more than that. And so it's like the idea that you care for something else and you have to worry about something else. It's just, it's a constant mental background noise. Even as we're talking now, I know that my partner is taking care of her. She's upstairs. She's in great hands, but I've got one ear out. What if she falls, you know? I guess I would just mention that this lack of care shows up on the part of your employer, shows up in other places. Um, And so when you see this, you'll see other signs as well. And for folks who, like me, don't have children or who maybe don't think they're the target of this particular insensitivity, I guess what I would say is that, you know, maybe it's gender bias and you happen to be the right gender or it's racial bias and you happen to be the white race. Sorry, I misspoke. Uh, The problem is that not (laughs) giving a shit about people generally doesn't confine itself to specific categories, right? If you don't give a shit about people based on their gender, it probably doesn't stop things. Yeah, I was going to say that it really speaks to just it speaks to the whole concept of like psychological safety. Right. And I feel that like a lot of folks, uh, at least I've seen in the past couple of months as well, it's been emphasized that a lot of folks are kind of in fear or operating in fear, you know, and because of that, it's been extra difficult. Right. And to your point earlier, uh, I forget who said it, but yeah, like as a parent, your cognitive load is like. I mean, I I don't know how we don't all just collapse. Like it's it's super stressful. But I think it's important to like compartmentalize, right? That's at least how I can stay up and awake <laughs> and productive. And so like I don't I don't do like I don't allow my kids to come on camera while I'm working on a phone call or on a conference call. Like I have a separate room or separate space and they are they know, even my six year old, that I'm on a call and Mommy's on a call, so do not come around that area for that 30 minutes or one hour because that's just how we have to like do it. But yeah, it's, it's challenging. And I didn't feel in my prior role that I, I, I didn't feel that psychological safety. So I didn't feel that I could do those things because it would come back to haunt me. So I had to, I had to really switch, you know, sometimes cold switch. Yeah. There's definitely an aspect there to like, how okay it is for for your children to be visible. Like if you're, you know, it's the same hierarchy as any other like power hierarchy in, in, in the culture we have, you know, a man can probably be handling a child. No problem. A woman, a white woman, probably not as much of a problem, but as you go down like the list of intersections into like more, more and more marginalized identities, it's more and more risky to display any of those things that could possibly be problematic or held against you. Like you were saying, Christina. Yep. Scary. I have this weird sort of explanation of psychological safety as it relates to privilege in this industry specifically, like you're going to take out restaurant or whatever, and it's a, you pick whatever meal, like a, you pick two, what out of, they give you five options And depending on what level of privilege you have, you get to pick more. Because if you want psychological safety and you're a woman and you're a person of color and you're a parent and you have a disability, you get psychological safety or you get a good paycheck or you get a remote job. You don't get all three, right? Like I'm I'm picking random. But the number of places that you have an opportunity to find psychological safety are smaller. And therefore, the other factors that you get to consider, that you get to care about, that you get to use to progress your career and your financial self-worth and all of these other things, they, they change. You're much more limited. And so it's been very disappointing and enlightening as I've kind of grown in this industry to recognize that, yeah, there are people who can make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money 
I would be giving up psychological safety to have the same job they do. And I'm a white woman, right? Like I'm a white woman without children. I am able-bodied. I am all of these things, but it differs. The number of opportunities you have in order to find a place that you can have that psychological safety and still have all those other opportunities differ. And I, I think that's why the the two-year job hopping thing also pops into my head when we have this conversation, because as the number of places you can work that are safe for you to work dwindle, the number of places you can hop and the number of places you can hop that are going to have the maternity leave or who aren't going to have like a, you needed to be here a year in order to take advantage of the maternity leave or have part-time options for when you come back, all of these things, the list of companies that offer those things gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so you end up being quite limited and you probably are in a situation like Christina found herself where your option is to go to work and pretend like you're not in a psychologically unsafe environment. Yeah, that's a really fantastic analogy and uh, really fascinating. I certainly find myself quite privileged to have had this supportive workplace that are allowing me to work more flexibly, where visibility of parents means that I feel quite safe going there. And um, this is an investment that they've actively made into their employees, which means that when I do come to work, I am gunning to go. Like, I, I'm so happy to be there and I can see myself staying like longer than this two year turnaround not just because certainly leaving would be a challenge because finding jobs is tricky, but because they have made it such that I feel so happy there that I'm loyal to this company. That's the investment that they're making into all of their employees, not just the parents, by offering flexibility and a, like a, a safe and supportive work environment. Laura, to your, your earlier point about psychological safety differing from person to person, I think that's a really good one. And it reminds me that the conversation about psychological sh- uh, safety has shifted to be about whether an organization is psychologically safe. But the original definition of psychological safety is the freedom to take interpersonal risks. And that's a personal freedom. So psychological safety is actually about a person in a context. It's not about the context itself because each person has a different it's actually literally the privilege of taking risks so psychological safety is a privilege that people have and they and different people have different access to it. so i think that's extremely right those are risks right depending on who like like i can take all the risks i want but then i have to be okay with the outcome right with the repercussion so like i can take the risk but then i may not have a job <laughs> I may not get that promotion. I may not, you know what I mean? Be put on like the great, you know, good projects that make me visible. It's it's deeply intertwined, I guess, maybe. (laughs) It is. I'm reminded of a company I was aware of a while back that had drastically below market rate. They would hire kind of entry-level software developers right out of school and uh, not promote them and sort of do this family, we're a big family mentality. It's okay. And a couple things there were particularly psychologically unsafe. One is they got away with paying below market rate because a lot of their uh, employees were on H-1B visas. And so their opportunity to move and their flexibility and the consequences of not having that job were much more severe. The other piece of that puzzle that rings in my head consistently is that was an environment in which compensation was based on personal circumstance. So new fathers would see promotions and raises And uh, men getting married would see promotions and raises. And I was employed there as a young single woman and did not obviously receive that treatment. And I remember thinking back and recognizing that it was entirely based around who had the flexibility to leave. And there were so many people who were not well off there and were not in a good, safe situation, but they knew that. And they could continue to take advantage of that because there was considerable consequences and not a lot of other opportunity for those same employees. I mean, it's heartbreaking, right? Like it's a terrible, terrible situation and and it's an environment that you never want to find yourself in. But I think that is a very, very extreme example of something that happens in a lot of places where you say, well, if you're not happy, you can leave. But the very people who are most disadvantaged are the people who are the least likely to have the opportunity to leave. There's there's one more thing that was implied by what Laurie said that I just want to make super explicit because I think it's really important for 
people who are trying to grow in empathy and compassion and their understanding of the situation of other people, you know, especially based on intersectional alliance like John was talking about, which is that just because I feel psychologically safe, that does not mean my coworkers do. 1,000%. Yep. Plus one. <laughs> plus two. Plus 20 million. <laughs> I think the thing we've heard most often, especially in light of a, a lot of the conversations that have been happening recently, especially on racial lines in the United States, is, but we're better than other places. And it's just like, that is a terrible bar and you are setting it because you feel comfortable. You have no idea if you're actually better because if you were, let's say, a black woman, have you been a black woman and living in the United States and a black woman living in the UK and a black woman living in Nigeria and a black woman living in China? No, you haven't. So you literally have no idea. You know that as a white man, you are better off in the United States than you would be in, you know, some other country based on your perception of geography and privilege and all of that. But you don't actually know. And so that same thing applies to companies a lot in this industry. They're like, well, we're better because we did this one thing. And it's like, that's not the bar. The bar is not I feel like we have talked about this more than other places talk about it. Or I feel as if we have had more empathy or made more space for these people than other places have. That doesn't create psychological safety. And if you are defending your company on those grounds, then more often than not, you're not listening to the coworkers who do not feel empowered there. And you are drowning out their voices with your own saying, but it's better. See, don't you see? It's too hard to make it great, but be happy here because it's better. But you're making that judgment call and value call for them. I always wonder why people do that. Like, why don't people just accept? Like, if, if I say, you know, this is my experience, why do you, why do folks like challenge that experience? Like, well, that's not my experience. And it's like, okay. Because it's a value it makes them uncomfortable. On- yeah, yeah. uncomfortable to uh, to accept and understand that you're doing well, and perhaps that's at the expense of other people. And living in that comfort zone is not helping anybody. And it's also mm. a value judgment of the other person, right? If they acknowledge the fact that a woman of color in their company is being treated terribly, and as a result, maybe the company isn't as great as they thought, and they have the privilege to leave, if they recognize that, then they're recognizing that they're complicit. And that's a really uncomfortable place to be. It's not great to sit here and say, yeah, I am giving my time and my skill set to a company that does bad things or doesn't value others when I don't have to make this choice because it's comfortable for me. And and that's not to say that everyone can leave a job and everyone can just walk away and say, oh, I'll go get money elsewhere. That's, that's not what it's saying, but it is harder to have that level of introspection and self-awareness and say, yeah, this isn't necessarily a great place and I have to accept that and accept my part in it. It's a lot easier to say, no, 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 it's just misunderstood. You know, they had a rough go of it, but really we're good. We're the good guys. Like we're the good guys. The the binary there of good and bad has been instilled in us when really it's many, many, many shades of gray. Um, and we're all somewhere in that spectrum. But in our heads, it's you're either good or you're bad. And if you're if you recognize that you're bad, then you're part of the problem and you have to do a lot of like cognitive dissonance around staying in a job. And it's I mean, there's a, there's a lot of emotion that comes to the surface for that. So it's easier to just justify it. That's a great point. I never thought of it that way. I'm just like, why don't they believe us when we talk about these things? And by us, I mean all of us, right? Like intersectional or not. Just like, why do why do they challenge? when we say that this is our experience. But yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think there's an old saying that um, you'll never win and getting someone to understand something whose salary depends on them not understanding it. That's a good one. Wow. (laughs) Their self-identity is even even harder. And that's the thing we probably could mention is how often in this industry do we see people whose self-identity is based around what they do and where they work. 99.999%? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when, you're, when you are told <laughs> yeah. that you are special and smart and more valuable than a large majority of people in other fields and other companies, and then you're playing this sort of rat race of, can I get into the biggest name where I'll have the most prestige and the largest paycheck and then be able to get any other job because there's that sort of like 
if Google's on your resume, you can go somewhere else. Fallacy. If all of those things are true, then yeah, you're going to feel really good about yourself when all of those check boxes are marked. Check. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, no. So, so self-identity being tied to the developer or God's mentality is both uncomfortable and accurate. Yeah. Just to your point on identity, sorry. I hopefully I'm not hijacking in a too wrong direction, but swinging back to being a parent and returning to work, I felt that it was quite tricky to accept this dual identity of being a parent and also being like a, a person who super loves their job because there's a little bit of stigma associated with being a mother returning to work. And that's bizarre even in this day and age that we still have this slight underlying like, oh, shouldn't you be at home with your kids mentality? Or like, who's minding them? Are, are they okay in daycare? Are they thriving? Don't, don't you miss them all day when you're at work? And personally, in the, in the months that I was away from work, I sometimes struggled a little bit with not being at my job, not having that satisfaction, being a little bit isolated. And when I decided that I did want to go back, it was very difficult to grapple with those conflicting emotions. Like, am I doing the right thing and going back to work? Or am I doing harm by my child, which is very unrealistic in reality, but that's a, that's a little thought that ticks over in your mind. And I really wanted to mention that because I think it's so important for anyone else who might be struggling with that decision to do what feels right to you. I remember talking to a friend of mine when I was like, I'm on my way into work and I feel really bad because I just dropped her off at daycare and she was crying and like, why am I doing this to her? And why am I doing this to myself? Because this is difficult to do, spending my time in this way. And the way she pitched it to me was that in doing this thing that feels right to me, I'm being a better role model to her by suggesting that she can pursue whatever career options she wants or stay at home if that suits her and that living life in a way that fills my own cup, I can be a better parent to her because I'm satisfied and I'm happy and just generally like doing right by yourself does right by your children by extension. Does that make sense? Yeah. Definitely does. I'm reminded of this is a pop culture reference, so I apologize. Parks and Recreation has this episode in its later seasons called the Pie Mary episode. And Leslie Nope stands up there and Love she gives it. a speech. And, you know, where are my kids? They're with parents. Don't you miss them? Well, sure. And, you know, sometimes I don't. And that... My goodness, sometimes I don't, yes. Right. <laughs> the, free, the freedom to say, of course I miss my kids. But also, sometimes I really enjoy being at work and not dealing with a toddler who doesn't like what she, what socks don't match today or whatever it is like I don't think we talk about that it's always you miss your kids or you wish you were home you're only working to get a paycheck not to stereotype but I don't know that men get that same pressure the idea that they would rather be home than be at work there's always an assumption that of course they would rather be at work and not have to deal with the temper yeah. tantrums and for women it's quite the opposite of course, they would rather be at home and they're only at work because they have to be to pay the mortgage or because, I don't know, that's sort of all it comes down to. Like, you're here to get a paycheck. You're not here for any other reason. And maybe that's where some of the stereotype and pushback comes in, that they're not pulling their full weight because they don't actually want to do the job. And development is all about passion and really caring about it and spending all your time doing it and just wanting to solve the problem. And you don't want to do that. You want to be with your kid. Yeah, it's not a binary choice between like, I love my kid or I love my job. Like, I'm a good parent or I'm a bad parent. Like, I'm trying to demonstrate you can be a better parent by being good to yourself and you can be a better employee by bringing your whole self into work in, in, a, in a way that makes you feel fulfilled and satisfied. It all sounds hard. <laughs> it is hard. It is hard. I think the, the hard part for me was grappling with the guilt and now that I've found a way to come to terms with it, which is yeah, being a positive role model and showing that you can just modeling the behavior that you want for your kids, that you want them to be able to forge their own path and not have their choices dictated to them. That makes me feel a lot more satisfied and comfortable. And of course, having the, this privilege of a, a workplace that's incredibly supportive that definitely doesn't hurt either. You know, I think that points out a really interesting aspect to this, which is like, so many of these ideas about what you know a mother actually wants and and versus the job and and all the stuff we've been talking about like all of that stuff is internalized that's built in that's in almost subconscious thoughts we're having about ourselves or what i understand you to be having about yourself 
not necessarily like verbal things that people are verbalizing to you, like, oh, wouldn't you rather be at home? And that makes it doubly hard to challenge those things because they just seem to be like the the water you're swimming in. It's just that's what what it's like. And so if someone actually said it to you, you could come back at them and say, like, where did you get that idea? I love these things both. But having it be inside yourself, you have to do all that extra emotional labor to realize it's there and to overcome it and to figure out what how to navigate. Like your friend sounds like they give you some pretty good advice about, you know, the value of having a job that you really like so that you could, you know, fight back against that internalized representation of yourself. In a, in a very small way, this morning I picked up uh, some laundry detergent to do the laundry. And on the on the bottle, there was a picture of a little toddler like running around and a dad behind them. And I thought like, oh, it, it shouldn't even notice the fact that that wasn't a mom on the washing up liquid, you know? But that that is one small way in which we're telling women all of the time, like, you're the one who does the laundry. And it's not like an ad saying like, oh, moms, isn't it so great you get to stay at home and do the washing? And aren't you so delighted? But it's just like just that tiny little insidious image that is running through the back of your mind at all times. You're absolutely right. I think this is where the term microaggression comes from, which is why everyone thinks that it sounds so silly because it's like, oh, but when a thousand times a day, every commercial you see is the mom doing the laundry and the dad coming home from work, no matter what age you are, that's going to start putting in your head what role you're supposed to take. And that's why it's death by a thousand cuts rather than, you know, it's not egregious that one commercial did it. It's egregious that every commercial did it. This grossness also shows up to a certain extent in the academic research on return to work. So most of the research on return to work, uh, so I'm a huge nerd, so there's a Springer textbook called The Handbook of Return to Work, so I have that. And it's an 800-page book, and the word pregnancy appears once, and the word parental appears once. But it gets worse because... When specifically parental leave is studied, you get papers like, how does parental leave affect return to work and fertility? It turns out, depending on how long the parental leave is, that woman might be more likely to have more babies. I'm shaking my head. People can't see it, but I'm shaking my head. The the very brief researching i did a tiny bit of googling on returning to work before coming to talk to you and i like the autocorrect was like returning to work harmful effects on children i was like why is that where this is going what is this about and after a very brief amount of scrolling what i actually saw was results that showed things like daughters of mothers who've returned to the workplace are end times more likely to have a more high paying job more job satisfaction be in a leadership role etc but that there was zero effect on sons of mothers that have returned to work because that model is assumed to be already there in the father. Hmm, that seems wrong. <sighs> I, I don't mean to keep comparing children to pets. I really don't. But I think it's interesting that when you first bring home a puppy, there's actually a whole thing you're supposed to do about getting out of the house multiple times a day, going for even if it's a walk around the block for 10, 20 minutes removing yourself from the environment so that there isn't this attachment and so that there isn't you don't create separation anxiety. And it's so interesting that we don't say this about children because there's the expectation that, you know, mom is home all day and if you leave them, they're going to be upset. And I, I'm sure we could look up the research and there would be some research about the fact that there are well-adjusted children who do better with the fact that, you know, they get used to their parents being gone and small increments of time and they're not around them all the time. And then when they go to kindergarten, they don't cry on the first day. I don't know. I'm making this up. I've not done the academic research here. But it's interesting to me that we have so many of these hypotheses that seem to be based around the idea that distance between parents and children is bad. And then they go out to prove that or say it was inconclusive rather than the other way around. And some of that has to be historical and the idea that this wasn't the model. And now that it could be We're looking at how the change in the model causes harm without retroactively saying, well, maybe historically we've done this wrong. And that's caused issues in and of itself. We just never bothered to study them because that's the way it was done. I mean, so much of how parenting is currently done, at least in Western countries, is not really how 
we would have historically done things right. I mean, th- even this idea that you're a mom and you're at home alone with your kid all day, like, where's the tribe? You know, where's all your community that would have come and supported you and cared for you? And children wouldn't have been like a single person's responsibility. They would have been exposed to and very comfortably happy playing with all, all kinds of people all the time. And is this when we get into the whole everyone goes to cities for the good jobs and remote work is a good thing because you can stay in your original community where you have a sport system and this is a whole other rant for a whole other time. (laughs) (laughs) But there is something to be said for – I had this conversation with someone a while back when they were talking about geographic-based pay and then remote work and all all that sort of stuff. But the idea that not everyone has the luxury of staying where they have family – and not everyone has the luxury of leaving their family. And that that has to do with social safety nets. And then there's a level of psychological safety that becomes more precarious when you have less of a social safety net, which can come from a lot of different places and a lot of different people. Mia, um, yeah, was there any other topic that you wanted to make sure we got into today? Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned earlier, I returned to work and then... Not too long afterwards, I was promoted to senior engineer, which I was delighted with. And after a little while of letting that sink in, I suddenly found myself kind of with this tiny seed of doubt of wondering like, well, were the two things maybe related in the sense that perhaps someone is trying to suggest like, don't worry, we definitely support our female employees returning to work because I'm, I'm also the first, it's a smallish company, but I was the first woman to be promoted to a, a senior position. And so even though this is not, like a genuine doubt that I have about the company where I work. I know that they are recognizing my skills as an, as an engineer. I do wonder sometimes what the perception of that might look like on paper. So if I were to look for another job somewhere else, you're looking at a CV of a person who just gets rapidly promoted and, and also they're a woman. And I suppose some of these debts were introduced just in, in general with the concept of diversity hiring or diversity promotions where when I was previously looking for jobs, I have actually even said like, oh, well, you'd make a great diversity hire. So here's a couple of companies that would be interested in you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your what your thoughts are on just this this slight contrast in like beliefs about yourself. Like I don't suffer from imposter syndrome and I'm glad of that. I know that I work quite hard and I have the skills to do the job that's in front of me. But what are other people's perceptions of me? Like, was I hired because I was a woman? Was I promoted before someone else? Like, is there is there a merit-based promotion or is this just like a diversity or a quota? I mean, I think from one perspective, it like that per- situation describes yet more of that cognitive load that people, you know, on the lower scales of privilege just have to keep in the back of their mind at all times of just navigating the situation you can't just walk in and be like yeah of course they promoted me to senior engineer end of sentence right whereas you and and probably a lot of others have to start have that all right now how is everyone going to take this and are they going to start treating me weirdly are they going to talk behind my back like all that other stuff that now you've got to think about for no reason i mean not for no reason but like i wish it was like not a real thing yeah, absolutely. So like there would have been an email that went out to congratulate me and I kind of sat there going like, oh, is, is someone going to take this badly? Like, are they going to think like, why her and not me? Someone told me that like, th- like I think it was four years ago when they were like, oh, yeah, you got this job at you know this big tech company. Like you were totally a diversity hire. I'm like, what? Like, why would you say that? You don't know anything about the company. You don't know anything. But she assumed that because, you know, I'm a woman of color. And not because I'm a woman of color that's technical and that knows what I'm doing, but just because I'm a woman of color. So I, I pretty much got offended. I don't, it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just for me, I just feel like I've worked too hard in my career to like, just be labeled as, oh, you were just a diversity hire. Like I was not rude to her, but I was like really insulted um, that that was like the way she viewed me. I would but have been I, furious. I <laughs> Yeah, I was furious, but I was like, you know what? You know, universe, forgive her because she knows not what she's talking about at this moment. So I'm just like, whatever. Like, I'm just like, yeah, no, actually, I was not a diversity hire. Um, and I did have to go through a very intense, like, interview, you know, interview process. So sorry, but no thanks. Um, yeah, that would, it, it undermines all of the hard work that you have put into the getting to the position that you're in right now. But I mean, yeah. the, just the way just, ugh, 
just God. Yeah. I, I think this is one of those moments where we recognize that most people in the universe do not recognize how absurd the tech interview process is. <laughs> <laughs> I was explaining this to a family member actually like uh, a couple months ago. And I was like, yeah, there's like seven rounds and you have to like code as if you were in grad school in front of people on a whiteboard or on a, you know, virtual screen for two of those rounds. And it takes like two to three months. And then it still takes three weeks after you apply. And they're like, what is this nonsense? So it's like, uh, most jobs in tech. Not all of them, but someone shared a meme with me recently that was like, if we asked doctors to interview for jobs the way we asked software engineers, and it's like, can you just, you know, like cite some obscure fact from a medical textbook you haven't touched in about seven years, and now off you go with a scalpel, and we'll just sit here and watch that. Is that all right? Did you see that video? It was so funny. Oh my god! And then people skewered her. People got mad at her because they're like, doctors have to do this and this and this and this and this. And oh she's like, I used God. doctors because I had a white coat. Will you it's stop? A joke. Come on. Oh, my God. I think the same is true of someone who had uh, it was a tweet or a video earlier today. And I can't even remember it. But it was something to the effect of, isn't it interesting that the best way to prove that you know what you're doing in your job is to do a million things that have nothing to do with your job during your free time. <laughs> that is oh not at all how it was phrased, but it was basically talking about the, how, you know, so often you're judged on all of these things that you do in your free time. And that's like a, a ridiculous thing. Okay. So you write code on a whiteboard and are the questions like related to the work that you would do there? No, absolutely not. I had a tweet that went viral, I will say, that uh, was another day goes by without inserting a node into an in a linked list. This is not what my CS degree prepared me for. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to implement exactly zero bubble sorts while working here. This is false advertising. I'm supposed to use this thing called libraries. They don't like when I decide to roll my own of this function that's existed in some really secure, performant way in a million different packages forever. They don't really appreciate when I decide to write it myself. I'm not really sure why. Somebody answered, uh, you know, whiteboarding exercise, how would you do X? And, uh, and she said if she was like, to be honest, I'd probably just look on Stack Overflow, but that's probably not the answer that you wanted from me right now. And I'm like, well, bravo, because that's what any of us would have done. But do you mind maybe stepping through it with us anyway? So I think it's probably time to start moving into reflections. I really enjoyed Laurie's analogy about psychological safety and privilege, the, the, the takeaway options. I thought that was a really great way of framing it. And I'll, I think I'll, I'll keep that in my back pocket for thinking about this topic in future. Yeah, it is a powerful way to think about that. And especially like what you added to it, Rain, about talking about, you know, just because I'm psychologically safe as a white man on this team does not mean that everybody else is. And so I can't just assume that it's all good because I'm cool with it. I think that's uh, something that I'll have to keep in mind as well. I was really grateful for the uh, dichotomy between Christina and Mia's experiences as moms coming back to the workforce after having a child or in Christina's case, multiple. I think it says a lot about the fact that, you know, there is no one story or no one scenario. And maybe we have hope if we've heard all of these kind of horror stories or uncomfortable, sad situations that there are models that can work and can be effective. And if companies have more awareness of them, maybe there's an opportunity to adopt some of those, some of those processes and, and make it better. Well, I really loved that Mia got promoted. It reminds me that it is possible to kind of, you know, remain optimistic that, you know, hopefully it will get better for moms, especially in the United States. Maybe United States should look at, you know, other countries and follow their leads. <laughs> and that it's a complicated and very just complex topic and issue. We just need to keep talking about it. I share Mia's reflection on what Lori was saying about psychological safety, but I was also just thinking about the interview questions that Lori was talking about. And one thing that Gerald Weinberg said that I think is relevant here is if you can't understand where someone's questions are coming from, they're probably coming from an agenda that they don't want you to know about. And so when I think about like, oh, were you a diversity hire? Or, you know, a lot of these situations, maybe they just have an agenda which is perhaps to feel better about themselves by putting you down that you don't understand. 
or to sort of, I, I, I think talking back to like comfort uh, and guilt before a lot of that is I have to believe that they didn't earn it because that means that maybe I didn't earn it. That's deep. Thanks for sharing that. Great perspective. All right. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for being on the show, Mia. Thanks so much for chatting with me. 